All right, good evening and welcome to our Bible study. We are continuing along in our study in the second epistle of Peter. Second Peter. We've entitled this whole series, Growing in Grace and Truth. And chapter 1 was a very positive, uplifting chapter. How to grow in grace, how to grow in our knowledge of Christ, how to be grounded in the scriptures. And we've now come to chapter 2, which is the longest portion of this second epistle of Peter. And it deals with the subject of false teachers and false prophets. And we ended last time uh, just beginning to look at the second section of Second Peter. We completed the first three verses, and we're now looking at verses 4 to 9. And for those of you that are just joining us in this series, uh, the notes and the recordings for previous sessions of the Bible studies are available at our website, and that is new-life-ministries.org, and you can follow the prompts there and locate both the written notes and the recorded messages. Uh, you can listen in either on the telephone or we're also on the internet at mixlr.com and our broadcast name is New Life Ministries. Alright, just recapping what we've looked at so far in chapter 2. In the opening three verses we talked about some of the activities of false teachers, how they operate, they sneak in, they come dressed up as sheep but they're actually ravening wolves and they bring very dangerous and very destructive teachings and heresies to the church. And verse 3 ended with Peter stating even though they seem to be able to continue for quite some time in their evil activities, he said their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. And that leads right into the next section which we're now looking at in verses 4 to 9. And basically in verses 4 to 9 Peter takes three Old Testament examples to make a point. And his point basically is God will not spare the ungodly. And in the context, he's just emphasizing what he already stated in verse 3, that even though these false prophets and false teachers may seem to be able to get away with murder, and they may seem to be able to operate beneath God's radar, uh, God sees everything. And he will eventually call them to task. And... In 2 Peter 4-9, to Peter uses three very different examples from the Old Testament, but he uses all three of them to make the same point. And that is, 
God will not spare. In the end, God is going to judge all wickedness, all disobedience, and all iniquity. And right now, you and I are being given a space of time to repent and to come to Jesus Christ and to receive forgiveness, cleansing, and salvation. But there is a day of reckoning coming when there will be no more mercy, there will be no more pardon, there will be no more forgiveness for the unrepentant, for the wicked, and certainly for the false teachers and the false prophets. And as we've seen in previous studies, God's judgment for this particular group of individuals is particularly severe because of the fact that they are intent on dragging others into their deception and into their destruction. And the three examples that Peter uses here are, number one, angels that sinned. And yes, indeed, you may be surprised by that, but the Bible talks about a group of angels that sinned, they rebelled against God. The second example is the world in the days of Noah that was destroyed by a worldwide flood. And then the third example he uses are the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that were burned to ashes because of homosexual perversion and sin. And we finished last time looking at the first of those three examples. And in all three of these cases, I want to point out something that I don't think we looked at last time. The section begins with these words, For if God did not spare, and then he mentions the angels, then in verse 5, he repeats the same phrase, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people. That word spare, if you look it up in the original Greek, it means to treat leniently. God is very lenient. He is very patient. He's very long-suffering. He's very merciful. When we repent, when we refuse to repent, when we go on in our sins and in our rebellion, in our wickedness, it reaches a point in time determined only by God in His infinite wisdom, but God determines when that leniency and mercy runs out. And in these three examples, the angels, the world in Noah's day, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, God's leniency, His mercy, His patience ran out. And the only thing that remained was God's wrath, His judgment, His destruction, and His condemnation. You know, the Bible says in Romans 3 that we need to understand two important aspects of God's character and who he is. Paul says, Behold the goodness and the severity of God. They seem to be contrary one to another, and in a sense they are. But very often you find these two opposing 
qualities in God's divine nature. He's patient, merciful, long-suffering, but he's also a severe judge. And you and I do not want to come under God's severity or God's wrath. And therefore it behooves us to humble ourselves quickly, to repent quickly, to run to the cross, and to avail ourselves of God's provision for sin, namely His own Son, Jesus Christ. Now, if God did not spare the angels, in other words, He was not lenient with them, and I always like to look at the Message Bible because sometimes the translation is even a bit humorous, and in the Message Bible it says, God didn't let the rebel angels off the hook, but he jailed them in hell till the judgment day. And really, that captures the essence of the meaning. God didn't let them off the hook. He wasn't lenient toward them. And although these three examples have one thing in common, Peter is using them to show that at some point in time, God's mercy runs out, he's no longer going to be lenient, but he lowers the boom, as he did in all three of these cases. Nevertheless, each one is separate and distinct also. And if we could kind of point out the key sin in each one of these three examples, the first one would certainly be rebellion. And we looked at that last time. The angels rebelled against God, and they became the devil's angels. We looked at those verses where it talks about the devil and his angels. These are angels that left their place. They left their position in heaven. They refused to continue to serve God and to submit to God, and because of their pride and rebellion, they were ousted and brought under judgment. The second example, which is where we want to continue tonight, and if you're following in the notes, we're at the top of page 25. God did not spare the ancient world under Noah's time. He did not spare the world. And in this case, the primary sins that are outlined in Genesis chapter 6, which tells the whole story of Noah and the flood, would be things like wickedness, corruption, and violence. And just a side note, in Matthew 24, Jesus tells us that those are going to be the same sins that prevail in the last days as we approach the soon return of Jesus Christ, expect to find increasing wickedness, corruption, and violence. Very clear then, we are in the final of the last days. We are seeing unprecedented, incredible wickedness, corruption, and violence in the earth. I've lived in the United States for more than 60 years, 
and it's only this year that I have heard of or witnessed beheadings in America. We recently had a woman beheaded in Oklahoma. We hear of small infants just in the news this past week. Again, a three-year-old bludgeoned to death. And this kind of brutality and violence is not accidental. It's a sign for you and me to understand that we are living in days just like the days of Noah. Great wickedness, great evil, great violence prevailed in the earth during Noah's time. And it would seem that for a period of time, we don't know exactly how long, uh, God seemed to be letting everybody get away with murder. But again, he wasn't letting them get away with it. He was giving them time to repent. And we're told here in Second Peter, from verse 5 again, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. It's fascinating to me that in both of Peter's letters, in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter, he refers to Noah and the flood. Seemed to be a very important theme to Peter, and it should be to you and me. And as a scientist, I have also studied quite extensively the geologic evidence throughout the earth of a global flood. And you have to be, as Peter says in another place, willingly ignorant. You have to want to ignore the evidence. There is massive evidence all around the earth that there was indeed a global flood just as that described in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And our modern culture laughs now, and they call us unscientific, they call us idiots for even entertaining the thought that there was a global flood. Well, quite the contrary, you're an idiot if you deny the evidence, because everywhere you look in the earth, any part of planet earth, you can find abundant evidence in the geology, massive layers of sand and sediment that could have only been deposited by large amounts of water, far beyond any amount of water that we are now experiencing on the land masses of the earth. Fossils, billions of fossilized plants and animals that were buried rapidly under sometimes miles, not feet, but miles of sediment, which is all in perfect harmony with what the Bible describes in Genesis, a flood that covered the tops of all of the mountains. And of course, uh, the secular, atheist, humanistic uh, culture that we live in 
would not want to admit to a global flood such as that described in Genesis because if there were such a flood then it's a major indictment against evil, wickedness, corruption, and violence. And if it happened in Noah's day, it will certainly be coming again. Not in the form of a water flood, but Peter says this time it will be fire. Let me read this again because there are some other points that Peter makes here that are not found anywhere else in the Bible. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, they were ungodly, but he protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. This is fascinating because nowhere else in the Bible is there any reference to Noah being a preacher. Peter obviously received a revelation from the Holy Spirit on this fact, and it's recorded for us in Scripture. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. We don't know anything beyond that. Whether he literally delivered sermons as he was hammering and sawing and building the ark, or whether it was just his righteous godly lifestyle that was a preaching or a sermon to all of the ungodly around him, we can only speculate. But two things we know. In Genesis 6-9, we are told that Noah was righteous, blameless, and he walked with God. So his life was a message to everyone around him whether he was verbally, vocally, also preaching to them and warning them about a coming judgment, we can only speculate. But another interesting verse about Noah is found in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verse 7. And it tells us that his faith and his godly life were a reproof to the wicked people around him. Hebrews 11 and verse 7. It says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is another interesting concept that is introduced here in Hebrews. We often think of faith being something that gets us something from God, and indeed it does. We receive forgiveness, grace, salvation, answers to prayer, provision, so many things come to us from God by faith. But this shows another angle to faith. By faith, he condemned the world around him. So, when you and I heed God's warnings about judgment, and by faith, we turn to God, 
and receive his provision for our salvation, we, in a sense, condemn, bring conviction upon, and rebuke those around us who are not living right. You've probably had experiences like that, where without a word, your life brought conviction on people around you. And it says, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. We also have an ark. Our ark is Jesus Christ. And by faith, we need to make sure that we are heeding God's warnings in these last days. And He is warning us about things we've never seen before. The book of Revelation warns us about judgments that are coming upon this earth that mankind has never witnessed. All kinds of stinging, scorpion-like, demonic creatures coming out of the bowels of the earth. Hundred-pound hailstones falling out of the heavens. These are not figures of speech. These are things that are really going to happen very soon on the earth. And if you and I believe God and believe His Word, we will take heed to these warnings and flee to the ark of safety. It says in holy fear, He built an ark to save His family. And our only safety in these last days is not the government it's not some kind of an Ebola proof suit our only safety is the Lord Jesus Christ and I am so glad tonight I have an ark I am so glad tonight I have run to Jesus Christ the Bible says the righteous run to the name of the Lord. It's a strong tower, and they run to the name of the Lord, and they are safe. If you haven't done so, my friend, run to Jesus Christ tonight. Don't walk. Don't think about it. Run to Him. There's no other safe place on this earth in these last days. We are surrounded by dangers. If not Ebola, it's ISIS, ISIL, chikungunya, murderers, thieves, robbers, rapists, you name it. We're living in perilous times, but you and I can sleep soundly like a baby at night knowing we're safe in the arms of Jesus Christ. And when you and I have that faith, that very faith preaches to people around us. It preaches and it condemns the ungodly and hopefully it motivates them to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. But I have a very sobering message for you, and it's actually not my message, it's God's. And Peter highlights it here in these verses. Let me read them again. If he did not spare the ancient world, and God is not going to spare this world if they go on in their sins and corruption and evil and violence. Unless they repent, they will not be spared. 
If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, there is protection for you and for me and for anyone else who turns to Christ. Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and here's the sobering part, and seven others. Eight people, just eight, were saved from the flood. I don't know about you, but that really bothers me. That scares me. That only eight people took advantage of God's loving kindness, His mercy, and His provision. You see, the ark wasn't Noah's idea. It was God's idea. God gave him the whole plan, the whole design. Noah was obedient to God. He built the ark. And anyone who got into that ark was saved from God's judgment. Only eight people were saved. And as I mentioned, 1 Peter also refers to Noah and the flood. And I want to read from there now in 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter's first epistle, chapter 3, and verses 18 to 20. It says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently, notice that, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It took over a hundred years for Noah to build that ark. God could have sent uh, a legion of angels down and built that ark in one day. But he deliberately took his time, and as we're told here, it's because of God's patience. God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And when I look at a nation like America that is declining morally and spiritually at an accelerated rate, I wonder, why hasn't God burned this nation to a crisp by now? He would be perfectly justified if he had done so. I can find only one reason. It's because of God's patience and God's mercy. But make no mistake, God is not winking at sin. He's waiting for repentance. Let me repeat that. God is not winking at sin. He is waiting for repentance. His patience is because He's waiting for something. He's waiting for people to repent. He's waiting for people to take advantage of his provision for salvation. But here's the sad part. And as I as I mentioned, Peter mentions this in both of his epistles. It must have really gripped his heart 
as it grips mine, and it should grip your heart as well. In it, in the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. I want you to think about that long and hard. How many millions were drowned in the flood? We're still finding the fossilized remains of humans that were buried in the flood of Noah. We're finding artifacts, pots and other uh, items that date back to Noah's day. How many millions of people were drowned and buried in that flood? And what a thought. Only eight were saved. Only eight were spared. If God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and just seven others. You know, I've shared many times a dream I had, oh, I don't know, it's been four or five years ago now, but it's as vivid as if I had it just yesterday. In this dream, I saw these ominous, fearful, dark storm clouds gathering in the, in the heavens. And you knew that some kind of an awesome storm was about to begin. And initially in my dream, I didn't really understand what it meant. But then I saw what I immediately understood to be Noah's Ark. And what struck me was, I was so afraid looking up at these clouds. It, it really struck fear into my heart. They were so threatening and so ominous. And then I was able to look down below the Ark and see people many many people all around the ark partying laughing drinking carousing and carrying on and they were totally oblivious to the dark clouds the threatening sky and the storm that was obviously about to begin raining upon them And then the part of the dream that really scared me the most was the sound I heard. It was the sound of the door of the ark slamming shut. And that's biblical. The book of Genesis tells us that after Noah and his seven family members were safely inside the ark, all of the animals were in there, it says, God shut the door. And the shutting of that door indicated something very profound. It was the end of God's patience. It was the end of God's mercy. The only thing that awaited any living thing that still remained outside the ark was judgment, condemnation, and death. My friends, 
we are not in a game. This is very, very serious. And God is trying to get the attention. God is trying to warn people in these last days that soon the door of mercy and grace is going to shut. And then a flood of judgment and destruction called the Great Tribulation will begin. The good news for you and me who are believers in Jesus Christ, there's protection, there's safety, there's salvation. It says, God protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. That's the sad part. Only a few were saved in Noah's day. And the Bible is very clear in the New Testament. Only a few are going to be saved in our day as well. And I hate to uh, rain on anybody's parade, but what many of the Christian movies have portrayed millions and millions and millions being caught up in the rapture to meet Jesus in the air. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to be that way. And let me read a number of scriptures to you in case you would disagree with that point. Matthew 7 and verse 14 says, But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The words of Jesus himself. Only a few find that gate to life. Matthew 22 and verse 14. Again, the words of Jesus Christ. Many are invited, but few are chosen. In Luke chapter 13, verses 23 to 24, someone asked Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? That's the question we're trying to answer. Are a, a whole lot of people going to be saved in our day, or is it going to be similar to Noah's day? Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Here's Jesus' answer. He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. We just read about the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Thus, confirming what he had already taught them in chapter 7, the gate is narrow and only a few find it. Revelation 3 and verse 4, the words of Jesus Christ to the church in Sardis, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. And in 1 Peter again, turning back to Peter's first epistle, in 1 Peter 4 verses 17 and 18, the whole question arises, are all the people in our churches going to make it? Well, Peter says judgment will begin at the house of God. And if judgment 
begins in the house of God, what's going to happen to people who aren't even in church? And reading from the Message Bible, it reads this way, If good people barely make it, what's in store for the bad? (laughs) If good people barely make it, I think King James says if they're scarcely saved, what's going to happen to the indifferent, to the wicked, to the backsliders, to the people who don't even care? It's scary. And I see a spirit coming upon the masses in these last days. I don't know what to call it. It's a combination of a spirit of slumber and it's almost a spirit of drunkenness. Or it's the kind of a spirit you would expect to see on somebody that's drugged. They're they're just sort of numb. They're sort of out of it. So even when you try to warn them about God's judgment, about the things of God, they're, they're, they're sort of out of it. They're numb. They're asleep. God help us not to be asleep, not to be drunk, not to be numb in these last days, but to be wide awake and to be aware of the times. So, in the days of Noah, there was rampant wickedness, corruption, and violence. But Peter uses this second example to reinforce his point. God did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood on its ungodly people. And now we move to his third example. And you better fasten your seatbelts tonight because I'm fired up. And especially on this third one. The third example he uses to make his point is the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says this in verse 6. If he condemned, that word condemned is a very strong word. We would probably hear it nowadays as a curse word. It means damned. It means judged and destroyed. Very strong word. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and follow me carefully here, and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless seed lawless deed, sorry, that he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly men from trials, and here's the punchline, to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. I don't think I need to elaborate on the sin 
of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you read Genesis 19, it's very plain. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. They were homosexuals. These cities were completely given over to homosexual perversion. And Peter is very clear here that when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he was not just punishing them for their homosexual sin and perversion, but he was making them an example for future generations. That's powerful. An example to those who would live, that's future, who would in the future live ungodly lives thereafter. Peter is speaking prophetically, and I certainly believe he's speaking to our day, where homosexuality is openly embraced, legalized, tolerated, and even exalted as some kind of a great lifestyle to achieve, Peter is speaking prophetically to the nations like the United States where this sin is now rampant and openly embraced that Sodom and Gomorrah is an example for us. He speaks prophetically to those who would come later in time and perhaps imitate the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Jude, verse 7, and remember Jude and 2 Peter are very similar, let me read to you how Jude puts this. Jude 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Boy, these guys were just not politically correct. Listen to the words they use. Sexual immorality and perversion. You probably heard recently in the news, the lesbian mayor of Houston subpoenaed all of the pastors in Houston to submit their sermons to the city so that they could be screened and checked for any kind of anti-gay, anti-homosexual, or homophobic speech. And it was interesting, all of the pastors rallied together and they mailed their sermons willingly in to the mayor saying, oh, you don't need to subpoena our sermons, you're welcome to come to our church and hear what we preach. And many of you may have, like me, joined in a petition. I signed a petition and submitted it to the mayor of Houston saying this is outrageous. It's outrageous what you're trying to do. But this is an example of where this nation is heading. And 
all of our uh, liberal, gay-leaning politicians and activists from the president right on down would do well to read Genesis chapter 19. Because this word is a very clear word that Peter uses here. The way God dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah is an example for America. It's an example for any other city, any other town, any other individual that would follow in the footsteps of the perverts and the sinners of Sodom and Gomorrah. This word example is a Greek word that means an exhibit for imitation or warning. An example or a pattern. So what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is an example, an exhibit, and a warning to any and all in our day who would follow in the footsteps of that shameful, sinful, perverse lifestyle to warn those who would follow in their footsteps. We are fast approaching uh, in this nation um, approximately 30 states that have legalized so-called gay marriage, homosexual marriage, whatever that is. It's not marriage. God doesn't call it marriage. It's a perversion of the very word marriage. Nevertheless, it's now legalized. And I heard a heartwarming story on our prayer line last night. There's a chapel that some people rent out to people who want to get married. And now the gays are coming wanting to use their chapel for their so-called marriage ceremonies and bless God they took a stand and they refused to allow gays to use their chapel and they may now be going to prison for it. Praise God. The Lord bless them mightily because they took a stand for righteousness. God help us if we're going to compromise and cave in with this perverse homosexual generation that we live in. Sometimes this quote is attributed to Billy Graham, but it's actually his late wife, Ruth Graham, who said the following, If God doesn't punish America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen carefully to those words. If God doesn't punish America, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Guess what, my friends? God didn't make a mistake with Sodom and Gomorrah. He's not going to apologize to them. He's not going to raise up their ruins. Quite the contrary, America will one day soon be in ruins as well if we don't repent of all this wickedness and ungodliness and foolishness. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. We as Christians need to be crystal clear on this because there's a flood now 
of ungodliness and the pressures for you and me to compromise, to cave in, and to join the crowd are very, very strong. We need to have a spiritual backbone and to be able to take a firm stand on God's Word. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. That's what Paul is saying. Don't be fooled by all this political correctness, all the rhetoric that comes from our politicians, including the president. Don't be deceived by their words. The homosexuals, the immoral, the adulterers, the male prostitutes are not going to heaven. Let's be crystal clear. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And we're not just picking on homosexuals. Neither are drunkards. Neither are slanderers. Neither are swindlers. Neither are the greedy. If you're stealing money, if you're cheating on taxes, if you're not giving anything to God, you're greedy. You're not going to heaven either. So we're not just picking on one group. Do not be deceived. That's exactly what Peter's teaching in 2 Peter. God's not going to spare people just because He's a good God. His goodness is calling us to repentance. And I want you to note the words that are used in these passages. We read in Jude 7, he uses the word homosexual perversion. Note the words here, homosexual offenders. They're not homosexual believers, they're homosexual offenders. And finally, and this is where we're going to end tonight, in Romans 1, verses 24 to 27, Paul addresses this at length, and I want you to notice the words that he uses. They're not very kind. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts 
with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Let me summarize the words that Paul uses in reference to what we now call gay lifestyle. Notice how the words have been sugar-coated. Gay sounds kind of nice. Well, I don't care how you sugarcoat it. These are the words Paul uses for any kind of homosexual sin. He calls it impurity. They're degrading their bodies. They're shameful lusts. This whole lifestyle is unnatural. I'm a biologist. And I don't need to go into the biology of it tonight, but I think most of us listening are adults and we understand the difference between natural and unnatural. This is altogether unnatural. And the whole purpose for sex when God created it in Genesis 1 was to procreate, to be fruitful and to multiply. Last time I checked, homosexual marriage produces zero offspring. It does not result in any procreation. Why? It's unnatural. And finally, it is a perversion of God's created order of things. Finally, Paul uses the word indecent or shameful. We must not be swayed by all of the political correctness and deceptive speeches that are coming through the media from politicians. We must continually have our minds renewed in the Word of God. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, and He will likewise judge any and all who continue in that lifestyle. But here's the good news. As we saw in the case of Noah, God made a way of escape. He prepared and provided a means of salvation through the ark. Sadly, only eight people took advantage of it. Nevertheless, God did not spare the world, but He protected Noah and the righteous safely inside the ark. In the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, He burned the cities to ashes, but He rescued Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. There is a means of rescue for you and for me, and yes, even for people who have been deceived by the devil and trapped in this lifestyle of homosexuality. And trust me, I know enough about this lifestyle to know that it's anything but gay. These people are bound, they are tormented, they are miserable. Many of them are regularly seeing psychiatrists. They are on strong medications to try to deal with their psychological problems because it is unnatural. Here's the good news. 
in 1 Corinthians 6, we just read about male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, and others. But Paul says this, that is what some of you were, past tense. That is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is hope in Jesus Christ. People can be saved, people can be changed, they can come out of that dark bondage and lifestyle and be washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, indeed, homosexuals can repent, they can be saved, they can turn from that lifestyle and find the grace of God, the cleansing, the mercy, the delivering power of Jesus Christ through the cross. We ministered to a young man years ago who was not only bound with this homosexual lifestyle, he had actually had a sex change operation. He changed himself from a man to a woman. And God did a miracle in that young man's life. He repented. He came to Christ. God delivered him. God set him free. And he found the joy of the Lord. I'm not talking about gay lifestyle. I'm talking about the joy of the Lord that comes from freedom that is found through the blood of Jesus Christ. So, these three examples and we're going to have to finish next time with a few final points about Lot. But these three examples, angels who sinned, the ungodly world in Noah's day, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, all three of them Peter uses to demonstrate two points. One, God did not spare the unrepentant. But the other point is equally important. Those who either remained faithful to God, in the case of the good angels, or those who repented and took advantage of God's mercy and salvation, namely Noah and his family inside the ark, or Lot, who fled from Sodom and Gomorrah because the angels warned him to get out of that place, they were rescued. And Second Peter 2, and I'm going to end again here on verse 9, If this is also, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. There's hope for you and me and for anyone who turns to God in true humility and in sincerity, but there's a fearful expectation of judgment and destruction for those who are bent on continuing in their wickedness and 
in their perversion. Let us pray tonight for a softening of hearts, for a conviction of the Holy Spirit that would bring many in this land and throughout the world, bring many to their knees in true repentance before it's too late. Father God, we thank you that you are a good God. But you've told us in your word that we need to pay attention not only to your goodness, but also to your severity. You're a good God, you're patient, you're loving, you're kind, you're merciful, but you are also a severe judge. And we read about your wrath that is coming upon this earth in days soon to come. And you're giving the final warnings to this earth and to the people in it, just as you did in Noah's day, that the door of grace and mercy is about to close. And there's still a little bit of time. You're giving us a space of time now to repent, to humble ourselves, to flee to the cross, and to receive the forgiveness and the salvation that has already been purchased for us through the precious blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not be condemned should not perish but should find life and life eternal god we pray that in these last days many might repent and come to jesus christ before it is too late help us to walk in the fear of god fleeing from evil fleeing from all ungodliness and help us to be bold, courageous, to take a stand on your word in these last days that we would not compromise, we would not go along with the crowd, we would not take that broad road that leads to destruction, but we would stay on that narrow road and go through the narrow gate that leads to salvation. God, keep each and every one of us Keep those on the phone. Keep those who are listening through the internet. Keep those who may even listen to this broadcast in the future through recording. God, keep us by your amazing grace and power until the end. Lord, we look to you with hope and expectation. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, even so. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen and Amen.